Hello and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Frisby. I am one of the hosts of this show. And the other host is Andrew Ori, who you're going to hear from in a second. He is partner with Ori Clark, which is a firm of lawyers and accountants. And Andrew made the observation that his firm has so many interesting clients doing, doing so many interesting things, and he wanted to find a way to share these interesting things with a broader audience. And that means to do that is this podcast. Andrew, hello. How are we doing today? Who have we got on? Who are they? Thank you. Thank you, Dominic. What a wonderful introduction. We have uh, the marvellous Tom Graham. Tom has a pretty uh, complicated CV, I guess, or, or, or extenuous, if that's a word. He was managing director until recently of a business called TLDR, which was a leading crypto advisory firm. Crypto is definitely a, a part of his life, uh, advisory firm and investment fund. Uh, he's founded a few tech companies, uh, OmniScience, which is formerly MapD, you possibly even heard of that, which is a very large company now, uh, a fastest database company, which uh, was the first to use GPU in memory analytics. I don't think that's, I've, I've phrased that right, but we'll explain that better later. Codec, which is a unusual marketing company, and indeed how we, how we met, it really reverse engineers marketing and tells brands and publishers, you know, how to target their products and services and how to to find their audience by sort of reverse engineering the social platforms out there and has some pretty juicy clients. Digital Future Council, which is a leading industry think tank. He's also lived in China and he speaks Chinese. He's been a visiting scholar at the Harvard Law School, uh, focusing on the intersection between social marketers and big data. And he's advised a number of crypto projects, uh, Quantstamp, Gifto, Cardstack. I could go on. <laughs> Uh, Tom, nice to have you with us. How you doing? Very good. Thank you, guys. And thanks for having me on. Thanks for that nice introduction. It's, um, it's an impressive list. Uh, and what's keeping you busy mostly at the moment then? Relatively uh, in between substantive projects, like where you might be working on a company or founding something like that. So I have been um, watching the crypto markets um, uh, go up and down, which has been very interesting on the sidelines. Uh, and um, been following things like... Uh, the politics in the US, etc. But um, we got out to Portugal just before Christmas, and uh, we've been locked down here ever since. So, um, well, I live in London, uh, currently in Portugal, in Porto. Okay, let's talk about crypto. You've obviously been in crypto for a while. So let, let's start with the big question. How, how big an impact is it going to have on the world? Um, I think that uh, you'll struggle to find somebody who knows much about it, who say that it won't have a really huge significant impact. Uh, and that's, I think, probably to do with trust and, and not having to trust intermediaries. But um, I think the, the most interesting part of that story we've seen kind of unfurl in the last uh, six months or so, where uh, institutions from traditional finance um, and companies like MicroStrategy, et cetera, um, and Square have started to um, bring Bitcoin onto their balance sheet um, as an alternate asset, uh, as an alternative to cash, US dollar cash. Um, and then the institutions have been accumulating Bitcoin positions um, and Ethereum positions potentially, but pretty much limited to those two because they're the biggest assets uh, with the most volume um, and liquidity. So um, that's a real monumental change from what had been happening for the last 10 years before that, um, where institutions and by that, I guess I mean um, white men between um, 50 and 70 
um, had wholly dismissed the technology and Bitcoin. But there is a big shift uh, currently towards um, adopting it as an alternative to uh, either as a uh, an asset that accretes in value because it's depreciary uh, versus inflationary, right? Um, or as some way of offsetting um, inflation risk, right, uh, from holding large amounts of US dollars on your balance sheet if you're a company. So that that's a big shift. Um, and people have been talking about that happening for a very long time, but the fact that it's actually happening, I think, um, is, is really significant. I noticed that like mad. I was born in 1969, I'm 51, and uh, I'm right on the divide between the two. But sort of prior to 2011, I used to go to, well, even more recently than that, I, I used to go to gold and gold mining conferences. And there are a lot of people who go to gold and gold mining conferences who are worried about inflation, worried about money printing and all the rest of it. And their go-to asset is gold. And I, so I'd go to these gold conferences and I would be the youngest person there. And then I wrote the first book about Bitcoin back in 2014 and I'd go to Bitcoin conferences and I'd be the oldest person there. And there's this, like, you know, Bitcoin, the new narrative is Bitcoin is gold 2.0. And there's so much sort of crossover between the two communities in the Venn diagram. But basically, Bitcoin's done everything that gold was supposed to do. And, you know, hopefully the more enlightened of the old fogies are now slowly coming over to the other side. Yeah, I think that... Um that the, the, the role that gold played in the economy um, and the way that certain groups of people thought about it uh, for the last, you know, 60 years, um, Bitcoin is kind of rapidly replacing that. Um, and it is a better alternative in, in many, many ways. Uh, one, because, you know, I think gold supply increases at something like 2% a year. They just dig up more gold. Um, there is always a mechanism where if gold goes through the roof, um, more gold miners start mining more gold and funding more projects. Well, that's the theory, but it doesn't actually work like that. <laughs> um, let me discount that theory because by by saying that, you're imbuing gold mining companies, companies with a competence that they don't actually have. And the idea that you can just increase gold supply when the gold price goes up, it just never actually works out that way in principle. And it's a, it's a very hard thing to do, produce gold. It takes many years, and that's one of the reasons it's so valuable. Um, so I hear the argument the gold price goes up and production increases. But in reality, if you look at the, the inflation of the gold supply uh, over many tens and hundreds of years, it actually grows at precisely the same rate as population growth. So in that way, it's actually quite a natural form of money. But, but anyway, uh, sorry to uh, take the other side of that. But Yeah, no, 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 that's fair. The, the regardless of how growth grows, as it were, um, Bitcoin um, has a very, very fixed supply, um, which is very predictable. Um, and a large portion of Bitcoin has already been um, kind of locked away and the keys have been lost, et cetera. So may, maybe a third of all Bitcoin could be discounted because they just will not circulate um, ever. And then um, the number of Bitcoin that enter the Bitcoin network uh, on any particular period, um, you know, kind of asymptotes towards zero um, uh, in in 100 years or so. So that um, is very predictable. Um, and at some point, there will be no more Bitcoins left to create. And uh, this takes, you know, like one variable in the formula of trying to work out what it might be worth away from that equation. Um, beyond that, um, it's very easy to transact, et cetera. Um, you know, you could move um, $100 million of Bitcoin uh, in 20 minutes. 
um, with a couple of clicks, um, but you can't really move $100 million of physical gold um, very easily um, at all. Uh, so there are lots of practical things um, that, that are good about it uh, and, and why people like it. You know, the people who are really focused on having that kind of asset in the economy, um, you know, gold or Bitcoin or something, which is a, a counter narrative to, um, you know, sovereign backed uh, fiat currencies. But um, it's certainly growing in popularity. I, one thing I, I can't understand, though, is I, I, I met that um, Craig Wright. I remember mentioning it to you, Tom. He's, he's a sort of semi-proclaimed inventor of Bitcoin. And his, his obsession, and I was slightly introduced to him on the basis of um, trying to look at um, ways to use Bitcoin. I mean, and his obsession was that it shouldn't be treated as gold and people should use it for micropayments and stuff. I mean... Is he is he off his rocker, or it's just not the way it's panned out, or something? Or well, I think that um, uh, in the, the, the promise of the kind of um, speed and security um, of these networks and how fast they can get to finalization and certainty of a transaction um, is really what uh, a lot of the excitement for in blockchain is all about. Um, whether the Bitcoin network can deliver that. Um, for Bitcoin, because it may take you um, 20 minutes to do a transaction if you pay, you know, 10 bucks to do that transaction, right? So that's not really good for a point of sale outcome. But there are a lot of people making great gains in um, building on the Lightning Network on top of uh, Bitcoin, which reduces um, uh, that latency and um, finality time. So you could use it for micropayments. Alternatively, um, there are many different types of blockchain network. Um, Ethereum is an example of that, but there are many others also. Um, which uh, strike a different balance between that uh, um, kind of equilibrium between security and finality um, and um, speed. And um, they just go much faster, right? So you could use those um, for point of sale or microtransactions, et cetera. So um, in, without, I, I'm not really interested in, in um, Bitcoin or, or blockchain politics, um, and I'm certainly not a, a Bitcoin maximalist, but um, that set of technologies definitely um, could be deployed um, quite well uh, to solve microtransactions, etc. The, the problem um, currently is that when you think about things like MasterCard and Visa, those networks are very, very efficient. They're very fast. Um, it all gets routed through a central intermediary, um, which controls and holds a lot of power in that kind of ecosystem. Um, and that's some of the things that people who are exponents of these kinds of technologies don't like. But um, current systems work pretty well um, for the majority of people. And we're really talking about people in advanced economies who have a lot of money, right? Um, but uh, blockchain technologies are a real contender to um, take over, especially in developing countries where this infrastructure is just currently being developed. Um, and eventually in developed economies, um, where uh, those blockchain technologies kind of rise to the level of service currently delivered by MasterCard, et cetera. I think that the kind of micro payments that, that Craig Wright's talking about is more micro than, than, you know, MasterCard and Visa can deliver. Craig Wright's talking about, you know, the equivalent of liking a video on YouTube and you give that person a Satoshi or something like that, which, you know, is just too small for something like, um, Visa and MasterCard, and probably too small for Bitcoin ultimately. Um, and 
But it's worth, you know, the, 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 the analogy is to treat Bitcoin as gold and then you look at the fact that we never actually use gold for small payments in history. We always use copper and nickel for, for those of the metals we use for small payments. And, and Bitcoin's role has become more, you know, gold and then you would use, I don't know, Stellar or Bitcoin Cash or whatever it is, um, you know, for your micro payments. That said, the original Bitcoin white paper did mention, you know, cash for the internet. And one of the things you associate cash with is, is micropayments, but Bitcoin sort of morphed into something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think in that ecosystem of different blockchains and blockchain projects and um, cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin is, is clearly um, the dominant store of value, right? Um, has the longest track record, um, hasn't had security issues. People trust it uh, to a degree which is way beyond that they, they would trust other networks, et cetera, right? Um, less volatility. Um, so it is, um, it, it plays a certain role in the current um, cryptocurrency economy, um, which is quite important. And that role is spilling over and starting to be used by these institutions. And that, that, that's what's really exciting to me because, uh, you know, for 10 years, um, the space has really struggled for legitimacy and, um, now that that is happening, uh, it's going to, you know, prices will go up, uh, the system will grow, more people will start developing things in that space. And um, I think quite quickly, um, this stuff will become extremely mainstream. So, Tom, so you're, you're basically looking for a project, is that right? And so let's talk about that. What do you see as the sort of the big growth areas from here going forward? Um, so I think uh, just to... Uh, talk about the crypto space a little bit, um, that region uh, of projects uh, which are conglomerated together under decentralized finance, DeFi, um, are all very, very exciting. So um, that's a great use case for blockchain technology where you are layering on some of the um, financial instruments and products that people use and rely on every day, and you're building them out um, currently underneath um, or on top of the network um, that is Ethereum, right, that, that Ethereum runs. So kind of building products, um, financial products on top of that. And I think there'll be, there's tremendous excitement there. There's been huge growth in the last uh, year and um, that will continue to grow and be very, very exciting. Um, beyond that, um, into out of the fintech world, I think that um, everything around food security and energy security um, is really um, extremely interesting. Uh, and problems that we're going to have to solve in the next um, 30 years if my kids, our kids are going to uh, inherit a world which is um, as close to this one as, as possible in terms of the environment, etc. cetera. Uh, it's not going to be the same, but uh, it could be worse if we do nothing, I think. So I think there's a lot of room for innovation um, in those areas. And uh, if I'm going to put my time and effort into um, creating a company or working on a project, then I'd, I'd love for it to be in that kind of space. Uh, something with a little bit more soul than um, shuffling money around um, or, um, you know, uh, helping people market um, makeup or, or something like that, right? Um, yeah, and then that's, uh, that's a luxury position to be in. Um, but... Uh, you know, there's really a lot of traction and interest in these things. Ten years ago, there wasn't. Three years ago, there really wasn't. Um, and I think that you could really, like, you know, Tesla's stock price is pretty much analogous to the interest and mainstream nature 
um, of um, of that interest in these things currently. So um, it's gone from you know marginal to centre stage um, in a short period of time, and and I think that's fantastic. So what do you mean by food security? Do you mean making sure there's enough food to feed everyone? Yeah, I think so. I think um, if you think about traditional agriculture, um, it's very, very efficient, right? The, the kind of agriculture you do in Australia uh, or the, U- uh, the US, um, super efficient per unit of land and unit of water and unit of fertiliser. And so um, there's not a huge amount more you can squeeze out of that system. So um, if you want to create more food or create more food um, using less energy uh, and less resources, um, things like synthetic meat, um, synthetic proteins, um, alternate stuff around aquaculture um, and utilising the oceans in a different way, uh, maybe using some different inputs like seaweeds and things like this. So um, many different ways that we can change kind of the input matrix of industrial food creation uh, to try to get to something that is more sustainable uh, and, and delivers more nutrients to more people as our population grows. And particularly as, um, you know, the developing world moves from kind of uh, moves into middle class bands of and patterns of consumption where more people expect different types of food. You know, it, it, I was listening to this interesting thing, which is, um, you know, Africa's obviously you know, finally coming of age, I would say, you know, um, in terms of uh, being given the respect probably it deserves. But they were doing a thing on about, okay, well, they've got to get, you know, uh, electricity all across Africa. I think it's like a th- uh, something like, you know, two, two billion people live without electricity and almost all, 50% are in Africa, something like that. And, uh, and then they were saying, well, the thing is, the traditional approach is build a massive power station and run pylons all across Africa. And it's like a win-win. And it's a bit like this with food as well, the stuff you're talking about. It's like, well, actually, if you use renewable energy, you can make it locally, cheaply. They've got lots of sunshine. You can have a small amount of power locally. People don't need that much power, you know, especially not in Africa. They're not addicted to stuff like we are. And you get this sense, so I do, that... If Africa plays its cards right, they could be like the only nation in a way that, in, in, can I say industrializes, but in a way like builds a network which makes sense because they, they've sort of been left, they came first and they've been left till last and they've got an opportunity now to build a sort of renewable, you know, and, and sort of, you know, beautiful world. I have this sort of, in my head, I'm starting to get to a place where I'm like, you know, maybe in 40, 50 years, Africa will be the place. Do you know what I mean? It's it's conceivable because we're, we're so, you know, locked up with our, our, you know, bygone technologies here and our addictions to crazy amounts of energy, you know. I don't know. What do you feel about Africa, Tom? I think that um, if we're trying to imagine what Africa will look like in, in 50 years in terms of energy consumption um, and infrastructure, then I, I think the model has to be China. Um just for the reason that it's the Chinese who are building all of Africa's infrastructure, um, you know, so that uh, while, um, you know, the Western consensus of countries has really not taken an interest so much in in helping Africa develop in the last um, 20 years, uh, China has been quietly helping African governments build out their infrastructure um, and uh, in large part in exchange for um contracts and relationships that guarantee China food security uh, and energy security, right? So, um, you know, for instance, um, somewhere uh, on the coast may sell all of their fishing rights to the Chinese fishing fleet 
in exchange for building a bunch of roads and a new airport, um, which would be a very, very common um, scenario across Africa. So um, if you think about how the Chinese patterns of energy consumption, um, they come from a very low bar. So, you know, maybe 15 years ago, an average Chinese person was using one-tenth or one-fifteenth the energy that an average person uses in a Western country. Um, and I mean Western country, I mean Australia, UK or the US, because, for instance, the Germans are very energy efficient compared to people in the UK. But um, uh, that has changed in, in the richer coastal areas where um, Chinese people are using per capita a much larger amount of energy, right, because they have um, more phones and more lights on all the time. Um, and that's really changed in the last 15 years. Um, but they are much more agile in being able to adapt um, patterns of life to things which um, don't cost a shit ton of money. Um, so that, I think, um, will be more like the, the model that is exported to Africa and how things pan out. Um, I don't think that, um, you know, all these different countries in Africa are going to be able to um, really move towards stuff that is uh, not aligned with um, the interests of the people who are investing a lot of money in that country um, or totally unaligned with, you know, um, straight up competitive competition driven capitalist interests, you know, where um, it is very um, desirable for everybody to have a phone and a computer and a laptop and multiple devices. Everybody has multiple devices um, instead of one device or some kind of other scheme where that's shared and energy consumption is reduced, et cetera. There, there are real big benefits in um, being able to start from scratch and then deploy um, a bunch of innovative um, and energy um, efficient technologies like solar, et cetera, and, and local wind farms and all of that kind of stuff. I think they'll get the benefit of that in the way that, say, you know, rural America, um, a rural USA won't get the benefit of that kind of upgrade or, or move towards newer infrastructure, um, you know, as all of their bridges and roads fall apart. But um, I don't know if it's going to be some kind of utopia or model for everybody else. Uh, I think that the countries who have a chance of being that kind of model for what we should be doing um, are more places like Germany where there is a strong, um, consistent government that can um, really incentivise specific action by individuals um, uh, rather than leaving that to, you know, the mad scrabble of competition amongst corporates um, or private interests. So I think that's probably the best chance to build something that, you know, is a good model. Um, so, yeah, I'm not really overly optimistic about um, our prospects no, that's a really, I think that's a really accurate and interesting point. And I mean, you've lived in China and you speak Chinese, so you would, you, you, you probably have a, I guess I, I have trust issues with China having tried to do business in China. You know, it, I don't feel, as the English would say, they're playing with a straight bat and you've illustrated it there for China. It's not so much imperialism that drives them, but food security, not, not, not miles away from what drove the British a while ago, which wasn't food security, but it's kind of sort of trade security, wasn't it? You know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So as we close, we have two questions that we close with, Tom. And the first question you've sort of answered already, but I'll ask it to you because it doesn't entirely apply to you because you're, as they say, between businesses. But so the, the first question we close is, is this, what are you most excited about for the future of your business? Is there anything you want to add to crypto, food and energy security? Yeah, I think in, in the immediate phase, uh, you know, in the next couple of years, I think it, it's the rise of DeFi, uh, decentralized finance. Um, and that being kind of a a, a 
vanguard for using kind of blockchain technologies in other applications. Um, you know, decentralized finance is, is really kind of analogous to a bunch of fintech applications um, that people use. Um, and the distribution of blockchain around different applications in the finance world, uh, whether that's consumer or institutional. Um, but there are lots of other good applications of blockchain technology. And I think that's a, that's a great vanguard and a great way to get people to take it seriously. Because um, uh, it it will be really interesting to see a world where there are fewer centralized intermediaries who have such a um, iron grip on, you know, the means of production, capital um, and political uh, kind of influence, right? So um, whether blockchain can deliver that um, is definitely not clear, whether it would change the status quo. But um, the fact that there's experiments happening in that space, I think is really exciting. Okay, final question. If there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? I think that uh, the the way in which social networks don't really take uh, any account for the dissemination of information to um, everyone in the public. It's not just like a small sector, it's, it's everybody. So you look at the spread of stuff around QAnon, et cetera. Um, uh, and then you look at the difference between... Um, false information on the internet before and after Trump has been banned by all the different platforms all at once, right, after the 6th of January insurrection. Um, that, I think, would have a bunch of really meaningful and positive outcomes um, in the very short term. Something like relatively simple to do, um, but the companies need to go and do it, and it's not necessarily in their financial interest. So will it happen? Probably not. Um, but I think that that would be a that would deliver a lot of very, very meaningful change in a short period of time. So you would turn them, you would turn them from platforms into publishers, effectively. Yeah, that, that's kind of like the set of regulations for traditional publishers that um, force accountability, etc. But you know, there is a scale and scope issue with something like Facebook that can't be addressed in a similar way, right? Because you can't have editors looking at everything that goes out there. Um, I think just really um, uh, a difference in the approach towards accountability. Um, and really robust ways to think about the social good of broad brushstroke movements like QAnon, right? So like most of these um, platforms, they, um, they get rid of everything um, and they block stuff where it advocates immediate, the immediate threat of violence. And like, that's a really, really high threshold to get to because um, they don't want to step over the free speech line, in, which is a particular problem in the US. But um, uh, not many other places in the world have a specific right to free speech, right, in their constitution, et cetera. Um, but I, I don't think that that's really enough to overcome the network effects um, of that kind of information in terms of um, its use to bring take advantage of, of regular everyday people towards a particular goal. And a lot of the time the goal is um, more clicks, more money, more revenue, um, or other very, very, very marginal um, or, or dubious kinds of end goals. So um, I think that, you know, there's something between the full set of regulations that a publisher like a newspaper has to deal with um, uh, and something that is way, way more than essentially no regulation um, that they currently have. It's, it's really confused between opinion and, and, and fact, isn't it? It's like there's a real problem with political correctness now that you, you can't really say what you think, you know, because you can't, because, okay, the general view in London is so left-wing, so if you dare say anything, you get stomped on. But, you you know, you're supposed to be able to have debate because that's the point of opinion. Opinion is not about facts. Opinion is opinion. But you're that's the line you're drawing. On the other hand, I'm a newspaper. I'm out there 
effectively I should be distilling facts, isn't it? What's definitely fucking wrong is is people we rely on facts lying, like like did, giving absolutely bullshit information and, and therefore swaying people because they've read it in print and they think it's coming from a factual source as opposed to it being opinion. And it seems to be these things are very fucking confused and, and, and I know Dom's upset about it and I'm upset about it. You know, why is this called business without bullshit? It's kind of like, you know, we, we struggle in business that we mustn't say the wrong things, you know, and we can't upset anyone. And, you know, we're all, we, you know, we wouldn't dare say we smoke marijuana or we take drugs because that would be bad for business or something. And it's like, it's bullshit, you know? Whereas, you know, the other hand is, you know, I think Wikipedia is probably one of the only examples of something that is more like the BBC and has been shown to be very accurate, but it's about facts and it's about, can you reference these facts? Can you justify these facts? And I think, is that what you're sort of referring to? There needs to be a sort of, you 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 kind of got to regulate the fact takers, but allow the opinion and we've got to separate these things or? Yeah, I think there's like the, the concept of fact and news um, uh, is quite specific, right? Um that uh, they are reporting on something. So, so reporting um, is, uh, is is quite highly regulated, to be honest, um, through those traditional outlets. Um, then, you know, the dissemination of like really crazy conspiracy theories, um, you know, about cabals of um, cannibalistic pedophiles, you know, running out of pizza shops um, in suburban uh, Washington, which is QAnon, right? That's the core tenet of QAnon. Um, when that is when when a platform can clearly see that that kind of crazy stuff is is being propped up by um, you know uh, non-state and state actors from overseas like Russia um, and then being pushed by people like Trump and other politicians to as as various you know analogies to dog whistles to to racism and white supremacy and all of this stuff like you can see that that is bad for society right that's not good um, and. Somewhere there has to be some way to um, have an understanding of how to control that that is not reliant on um, the profit motives of, say, that social network or other people. Facebook has implemented this thing they call it like the Facebook Supreme Court, where it's like it's something like forty people um, who are meant to very soon adjudicate as to whether Facebook, uh, Facebook should lift the ban on Donald Trump. And um, you know that's. Who knows if this is just like a League of Nations kind of like uh, crappy way to do it. Um, Facebook says that they're bound by it, but whether they'll actually um, come up with a, a good mode of deciding these things, it's, it's unclear. Um, but I think that one thing is difficult is that when um, you have corporations where the bottom line is to the shareholder um, and clearly um, it is very, very profitable to allow the dissemination of this kind of information for the platforms. There's a, a conflict of interest there that is, is really hard to reconcile. And so I think that that's, you know, where um, government needs to work with these social networks. All right. Well, Tom, thanks very much. If people want to get hold of you or find out more about you, is there a way they can do that online, follow you somewhere? Um, so I'm, I'm not particularly active on uh, social networks, I guess, which is which is uh, in line with, with what I was just saying. But but certainly, um, I guess if there are show notes, uh, I can I can leave some contact details there. Contact Andy Owry, as everyone else says. <laughs> yes. So, dear listener, that would normally mark the end of the show here on Business Without B****. However, our producer, D has observed that there's always so much of our chats with guests, which we don't end up including in the show, chat which may be less about business, but nevertheless, well worth a listen. 
So in the light of his his epiphany, we thought we'd try something new by adding a brand new chapter to the show. Some might call it the outtakes, but as Andy likes to say, here's less business and more It's quite an alumni, the Harvard thing, isn't it? I mean, the few going to Harvard, it, 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 you know, I went to, oh, fucking hell, I'm going to admit it. I went to Eton and I hated it. But anyway, I did. And people always like, oh, well, it's all about your phone book. I mean, I remember having a row with this guy who was in the government who said, oh, well, if you wanted, you could ring up David Cameron and get the VAT rate changed. I mean, I couldn't have been more fucking angry. Like, I was just like, I don't know. I was like, maybe 200 years ago, that's how it rolled. I was like, you know, <laughs> maybe I could get a meeting with him. Maybe if I made enough fucking phone calls and I had no friends at Eton, but maybe... I could get a fucking meeting with him, but I went into the meeting and said, do you think you could change the VAT rate, David? You know, really sort me out. (laughs) Privilege is a really complicated conversation because what I find when I really get into it is that it's a lot about your parents and what, how hard they try to make sure you had a good education and look after you. And, and so you can get into conversation with someone and they're like, well, it's not fair. I want the same opportunities you have. And then it's like, I start thinking, well, you want the same parents as I've got. And is that what you're saying? Because, Your parents, one was an alcoholic and that's shit for you and this happened to the other one and stuff. But is society most to make up that gap? That's why I get stuck with privilege because there's so... I've had had to hide over my privilege over the years, you know, because, you know, a lot of people have a big problem with it, you know, and you you get a lot of uh, resentment and stuff and you're kind of like, sorry, I, I, you know, I didn't didn't feel like a privilege being locked up in boarding school to me, but, you know, there we go. And make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of Business Without Until then, from Andy Urie and me, Dominic Frisby, it's cheerio. Listener.